Greetings, and welcome back to the podcast. This episode, we're joined by Mr. Renny Amiro, CEO of Secure Energy Services, an energy company listed on the TSX with a market cap of approximately $2.3 billion. Mr. Amiro was appointed as the president and CEO of Secure in March of 2007, and from 2001 until 2006, Mr. Amiro was the vice president of corporate development of Terravita Corporation, formerly CCS Income Trust. Altogether, Mr. Amiro has over 25 years of experience in the energy industry and also held various positions at Imperial Oil from 1981 until 1994. Mr. Amiro received a certified general accounting designation in 1984. Among other things, we sat down and discussed 80% recurring cash flows, emphasizing the field, and why customer service matters. Enjoy. This podcast episode is sponsored by Conate Water Solutions. Do you need cost-effective water sourcing options to supply your next drilling or completions program? Conate Water Solutions is a specialized hydrogeology company focused on water well drilling, testing, and water management services in Western Canada and Texas. Contact info at conatewater.com or check out conatewater.com for more details. This episode is brought to you by Canada Action, whose aim is to promote the importance of Canada's energy industry, which is the bedrock of our nation's economy, providing hundreds of thousands of jobs and economic opportunities across the country. Learn more at canadaaction.ca or check out Canada Action on social media. This podcast episode is sponsored by EcoFlex Recycled Rubber Solutions. EcoFlex has been providing the oil and gas industry with matting and safety walkways for 30 years, with mats that are resilient, flexible, and an eco-friendly option for your toughest site conditions. With shock absorption, insulation, and easy maintenance, EcoFlex mats are the perfect choice for any job. Check out EcoFlex.com for more details. Good morning, Mr. Rennie. Maybe we'll just say Rennie. Yeah, just say Rennie. Everybody knows me as Rennie. (laughs) Thank you very much for doing this. I really appreciate your time. Yeah, great. I know it's valuable, but there are a lot of people out there that will appreciate this conversation. So thank you. Thank you. I guess to, before we start, for the listener, there are no scripted questions in this conversation. Uh, Sometimes people in your position like to script everything out, but in this case, it uh, seems like the best CEOs don't do that. So just for a little background for the listener, really appreciate it Yeah, in that sense. That's great. You're the CEO of Secure Energy Services, but what is Secure Energy Services? That's a good question. You know, we've evolved since we first started. We got started back in 2007. And I think at that time we looked at our value chain being involved from the time people think about drilling a well to the final abandonment. And so looked right across the value chain, said, okay, where can we add value? And so that took secure from, you know, helping uh, the consulting of, of actually where they would drill, you know, the well, you know, we have like drilling consultants that help with the environmental side. We, we acquired a, a drilling fluids company, Marquee Alliance, you know, we got involved in the um, the frack waters, the pumping and the and the frack ponds, um, and then into um, the day to day production of water and oil emulsions and and uh, the associated waste, and then finally in the you know we did a 
a small acquisition uh, in regards to the whole reclamation reme remediation. And so that covered a, a wide spectrum and taking us from 2007 to 2014, all services required, you know, we're coming up with innovative solutions and then 2015 hits and it's like, oh shit, like we're going from 800 rigs down to 200 rigs and a reset on, on your commodity prices. And we just took a time out at our, at our strategy session said, okay, where can we truly add value as opposed to trying to, to do everything? What can we really, really add value uh, for the customer? And so over the, over the years, we've shrunk the different service offerings and really focused on a, can we truly add value and differentiate ourselves with the customer, but also B, you know, is there truly free cash flow? And at the end of the day, because revenue is nice, EBITDA is even nice, but what's left in the bank account at the end of the year. And so that obsession with free cash flow, I think started back in 2016. At the time, uh, Alan Grant was uh, our CFO, I think helped formulate that from now on, we're going to um, focus on any new organic growth was going to be backstopped by a customer. So that would obviously help with the cash flow profile, but also take some of that risk and variable cash flow, uh, make it a lot more sta stable. And so that's how we've kind of evolved here to really, it's, a, it's an environmental waste management company and it's energy infrastructure. We still do th some of the things like drilling fluids because it's a great free cash flow business. But if you look at the majority of our of our cash flow, it's coming from the environmental waste management, which would be around seventy percent. The uh, energy infrastructure, so your pipelines and terminals, is about twenty percent, and then the other, you know, what we'd call the oil field services, are about ten percent. How did you get into energy? I think well, you're an accountant by training. Yeah, it, it's huh. an interesting story. So I got uh, hired right out of right out of college by Imperial Oil. And at that time, uh, the head office in 1981 was was uh, in Edmonton. All my friends were in Calgary, so I used to come down quite a bit on the weekends, uh, you know, Friday Friday afternoon to Sunday night, and go back to Edmonton. But we had a great entrepreneurial culture in Imperial Oil at the time for a big company. You know, it was the company that discovered Leduc and and took a lot of bold entrepreneurial ideas and and executed and and they were the leader across across canada and the ceos at that time were very entrepreneurial they're all canadian and most of them were from the prairies very very successful and after about a year in accounting i told my boss that i need to get to the field i i i'm not i need to add value i need to be working on something that's proactive versus reactive and uh so he said all right we'll send you to the beaufort tuck-tuck so I was working two weeks in, two weeks out of the Beaufort, loved the job. I mean, you know, basically here I am, you know, second year with Imperial Oil and, and they're just basically handing me the keys at Tuck Base to help manage this Beaufort farm out agreement with Home Oil. And, you know, it's the, you know, really logistics hub to get all your supplies and people out to the out to the rigs and uh, and drill these at that time 50 70 million dollar wells offshore and very exciting and and loved it 
great thing was you'd you'd go up there for go up there for two weeks, you'd spend no money, and then you'd you'd go out for two weeks, and lo and behold, I was at the time trying to finish my CGA, so you know I wasn't spending a whole lot of money uh, when I came out. So I had more money in the bank than I thought I'd ever need, and and so uh, it was a great great two years, and and then um, as that started to wind down. Back then, if anyone remembers, they had the PIP grants, and that started to wind down, so the incentives weren't there. And then I went on to a new project, which was the Judy Creek uh, Municipal Flood. And from there, you know, they were taking an old field and introducing these solvents to get more oil out of out of the ground, which was, again, pretty groundbreaking in terms of, of what they were doing. A lot of it was pipeline from Edmonton and injected and recovered. And again, it was a unbelievable project. Uh, lots of things to learn about old production versus new production, and and to this day, it's still going. It's you know you'd think a field that's fifty, sixty years old would have nothing left in it, but it's still going. And that's the magic of this energy industry is that it just uh, has a way of rejuvenating itself and keeping these either these old fields going or now trying, obviously, with the new horizontal techniques, going into brand new parts of the reservoir that nobody even thought we could go into. So really, that's how I got into the energy industry and then wanted to get into the downstream side of the business. And so I was able to go into the downstream uh, around the refinery and the, you know, you had your bulk agents and you had your fertilizers and chemicals. So that was exciting. But after about five years in the downstream, missed the the lure of the the upstream and and wanted to come back. And, and then that ultimately took me in a roundabout way to a little tiny company called Canadian Crude Separators. Hmm. Did you ever cross paths with Chip Wilson up north? I read that he was uh, on the rigs in the 80s. Oh, no, I didn't. Uh, okay. No, I didn't, <laughs> didn't hear that one. <laughs> I mean, there was, there was a lot of characters up there in the, in the north. And, and uh, Arnie LaCroix was one. He was, uh, you know, former truck driver and, you know, it would have been a 300 pound linebacker in the NFL, you know, that kind of, uh, that kind of, uh, foreman and, uh, and, but fearless. And when Arnie talked, you listened. When I was preparing for this conversation, I read in your bio that you at one point referred to yourself as an independent businessman. I've always kind of admired that trait and always aspired to be maybe that sort of private investor. Maybe have you always had that independent streak in you? Yeah, I think it comes from my grandfather. He um, he had a fish processing plant in Nova Scotia. He used to export his fish, if you can believe this, down to the Caribbean. He used to tell me stories, crazy stories, pre-revolution, going to Cuba and places like that. And yeah. and so I think those those kind of stories when I was young always maybe planted a seed or a, a bug in the in the back of my brain that someday I could be an entrepreneur. And I remember. When I went to college, I the last you know your your last semester you, you do a project where you try to create a business on paper, so you don't actually. And um, again, that just rejuvenated the juices to say that someday I need to start something. But it's it's funny, you know. I spent thirteen years with Imperial Oil, and I kept saying, "Well, you know, and I'm going to be here for five years, and then and then uh, I'm going to start something." And um, and to give credit to Imperial Oil and that entrepreneurial uh, environment and, and a great culture, 
it wasn't until year 13 I said, all right, I got to move on. But they basically had their hooks in me for 13 years because it was a great place to work. So that's always, I think, been there. And and I was looking around to what I wanted to go next. It, it was definitely going to be small, but I wasn't sure exactly what I was going to get into when I left Imperial Oil. Sometimes life at the big company is too good almost so to yeah speak. <laughs> yeah it's it, hard to leave it, you know like the you know what's what's the <clears throat> what's the uh, the saying you know good is the enemy of great because you know if it was really bad i'd leave but if it's good you, you know everybody's happy right sometimes lucky ones get fired yeah <laughs> <laughs> <clears throat> to go back a little bit you've been the ceo if i'm correct of secure for roughly 16 years i th- yeah it was about march of 2007 some individuals got together, uh, you know, at the time I'd taken a year off between, uh, Canadian crude separators. Now, you know, name got changed to Tavita and did some traveling, got on some boards and was trying to figure out what to do next. And some of my old employees, Dan Stanky and Gord Getzinger and Kara Mirheim, uh, were trying to start this small company and, and Dan actually named it, you know, Secure Energy Services. And when they came to me, I said, Dan, I said, you know, like, if we're going to do this, if you want me to join and put my money in, we've got to do it right. And we just can't. I think his idea at the time was, you know, you'd have this small little group and, and uh, shareholders agreement and, 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 you know, we do one project every couple of years. And I said, no, if we're going to do it, we have to do it right. And we're going to have to get external shareholders. And I think, you know, that was scary for them because, well, are we going to get lost in the shuffle here? And a couple other individuals, Nick Wheeler and, and Gary Para, came on. Nick had a CFA background, but he had helped me with business development at, at Tervita. And, uh, you know, I think between all of us, we started to formulate that plan that, okay, we're going to do this. Let's do it right and and actually go out and, and raise some money. Why do you think you lasted so long? Sometimes, even though you're a good CEO, things can happen under your control where maybe an activist shareholder takes over or the board of directors stabs you in the back and you don't last. How come do you think you lasted? Um, you know, I think when you put essentially 95% of your net worth in, into a, a company like this and then all that sweat equity, you get to see the thing blossom you're given 150% every day. And so I knew, I knew from my other experiences at Tervita that, and, and even watching people at Imperial Oil that were successful, that if you surround yourself with great people, you can accomplish great things. And so I knew as long as we were accomplishing great things, I wouldn't have either my board or an activist looking over my shoulder and two, we, I was very careful, especially in those early years, not to call it, go after the easy money. And, and next thing you know, you have a 50% shareholder that could get more short-term thinking versus long-term. So we always talked about the long-term. We always talked about what's right, not for the quarter, but how are we going to create shareholder value over one, two, five years? And so I think that helped. And, uh, but definitely... Shortly after we even started with 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 the original founders, there was three key people. This is this is where you ultimately you, you know they're when you first meet them that 
that they're good people, but I mean, these are great leaders. And that was Alan Granch, Corey Hyam, and Dave Engel. Like that really, that really took it to the next level. It's like getting three first round draft choices, you know, in the, in the NHL. And you know, they have so much potential. I'm trying to steer the ship knowing full well that I've got first line, second line, third line, fourth line, but they're really all first and second liners. Usually I ask if you had to put your own money in the company to create a symmetry of risk with the shareholders, but in this case, it's it just already came out. So It was just all in. We've <laughs> <laughs> already established that. <laughs> and, and, and the nice part was, like, I know all of them, every, every name I just mentioned, they not only took their savings, but they actually took mortgages out on their homes to put money in because they could see the potential, but they also had that, you know, owner mentality that, Hey, I want, I want to share the upside. Were you aware of the importance of that or is it just implicit? You know, I, 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 I'm a big believer in, in share ownership and I, and there's two things I wanted them to do was one was put as much money as you feel comfortable with and, you know, don't ever push yourselves into an, uncomfortable risk position and part b is i tried and, and convinced my board let's load let's load these people up with options because if if again that's another way to get shares if we do good those shares those options are worth something if we don't do good they're worth zero to get back to secure to get it right from the source what makes a good energy service company to you is it expanding the franchise is it straight throughput is it a diverse service offering is it relationships with the customers maybe all of the above yeah that's that's a great question great question and, and i think as a organization evolves and and as your leaders involved you're always fine tuning those corners but i think uh, we always try to be best in class so whatever we're going to do let's 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 be above average be best in class i think Definitely after 2016, we started thinking more about critical infrastructure, and that certainly um, played into trying to get, for instance, trucks off the road and, and pipelining water and oil to your, to your location as opposed to the ups and downs. Very much, you know, even right from day one, we had oil and gas company uh, employees supporting us in terms of, look, we really want a great competitor from a service point of view, not necessarily to bring the, you know, the prices down dramatically. It was more of our trucks are lining up. We, we can't get into a facility. We just need some really good service here. And, and that was, you know, a big, a big part of our, we, we always had that environment, you know, minimized environmental impact. I think that was kind of in our DNA because, you know, you're dealing with waste products and, and byproducts and, and ultimately into that remediation and whatnot and, and reducing the environment. So, you know, when this whole ESG thing really took off, it was like, okay, we've been kind of doing that for a long, long time. So that wasn't really a, a hard push. It was just like, yeah, let's just tell everybody what we're doing. You know, it was more, and then, you know, I think um, we've always been field, you know, centric in terms of We've always had that attitude. The money is is won or lost in the field, so we always looked at, you know, including myself as overhead and resources supporting the field as as opposed to the other way around. And I think 
anytime we went out to the field, you could just see their energy and ownership because of it, because they knew we weren't there to check boxes or give them shit for something. It was, hey, what's working? What's not? What are your challenges? Is there anything we can do to help? And if you go into that kind of attitude at that field level, your employees are just six feet off the ground. Hmm. You actually care. Yeah. Yeah. Levi Strauss made a fortune in the late 1800s servicing the gold rush. He didn't actually look for gold. He thought it was better to service the gold panners viewed secure in that sense. And that maybe there's a lot of opportunity in the uh, midstream, maybe servicing the people looking for the gold, so to speak. Oh, for sure. Um, but I, I think it's evolved now into this more of this, how do you make a win-win uh, solution for your partner? And so, and I think the oil and gas company now is thinking the same thing. I'll, I'll give you an example. We were one of the first infrastructure players that said, you know what, we think we can A, reduce your cost, but B, maybe share some of the upside in terms of optimizing blending your crude oils. But you know what, we're not going to take all that. We're, it's going to be an open book and we're, you know, we're going to split that with you. And depending on how much capital you want to put in, we'll you know, kind of drive that formula. But at the end of the day, you're not hiding anything. You're showing your partner, there's some extra money to be made here. Let's work together. And that's a win-win. And, and so I really, really tried to uh, try to find different innovative ways to do that. And guess what? That partner then says, well, you helped us over here. Can you help us over there? Can you help us over here? And that's, that's been a big part of, uh, I think, of our value proposition these days is that, hey, let's try to make it a win-win. Not tit for tat or maybe right. tit for tat in a good way. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> How do you explain that to shareholders? In this, It's kind of intangible in the fact that you treat your business partners right. I guess it just shows up in the results over time. How do you explain that? Yeah, I, I mean, you know, I, I had a conference call with some New York investors this morning and, and some in a roundabout way, they're asking some of the, the similar questions, you know, and um, I just said, look, at the end of the day, it's all about cash flow per share. And where the rubber hits the road is we've invested X amount of capital. What, what are the returns on that? And so if you can consistently show better and better returns, if you can consistently show your cash flow per share is going up for the shareholder, then they get excited. Then they start believing in that, okay, whatever he's doing there, that, 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 that's working. It's working. It's, it's obviously working for the customer because you keep growing. And, and part B is you're making more money. So I think that's, a, you know, that's ultimately how they measure you. Sometimes energy services are a proxy for the industry. When the tide goes up, so does the service end of the business. But when it goes down, it also falls. How do you structure secure so that it maybe is resilient to the ups and downs and you can hopefully provide that steady cash flow? Is, or have you thought of it that way? Oh, yeah. Uh, like you go through, when you get punched in the gut in 2015, 16, and you get punched in the gut in 2020, you are laser focused on how do I, how do I eliminate this pain not only for the the shareholders but the employees? Because you know, let's face it, laying off people is is not a pleasant task. And so, you know, again, if you look back to that pivotal point in 16, where 
the leadership team said, okay, let's try to get some long-term contracts. So that helps with the stability of the cash flow. Two is let's really focus on reoccurring revenue. So if you think about the world we live in, in that oil field services and, and nothing against the precisions and the tricans of the world, but you, you're living on the, the drilling of a well and the completion of the well. But there's a lot of, lot of things that need to be done to produce that barrel. You know, that, that barrel of oil, that natural gas liquids, the natural gas, and, and all that associated with it. So we're probably now at a ratio where 80% of our cash flow is reoccurring and 20% would be more cyclical. And so that gets us to a point where if we have a little bit of a slowdown and oil suddenly drops to $50, we can ride that through. So that that's the that's the foundation. Part B of that is... We have a very proactive leadership team that ensures that we're not overstaffing or we're not over-resourcing. So try to try to also stay lean so that when you do have those tough times, you know, you can minimize any type of downsizing. The critical investor would say, I've heard this before and that I've seen this story play out before, but it seems like there are opportunities for the company to create the recurring revenue nowadays that maybe have been capitalized or just a change in philosophy from the company? Have you had to explain that to shareholders again, maybe from the East? Oh, oh yeah. And, and again, it, you're only good as your last, you know, financial statement, right? So you, you can't have high volatility in your earnings and exactly. say, hey, no, 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 it's all reoccurring. <laughs> yeah. So, to, so I mean, the magic of that merger with, with Tervita was that uh, – they, you know, they had a plant running at 40% utilization. We had a plant running at 40% utilization. We both weren't getting a return, an acceptable return on investment post-merger. Now you're you're running one facility at 80% utilization. And so part of that is higher utilization of your assets. And part of it is uh, they had some business units that had more reoccurring revenue, i.e. the metal recycling and some of the industrial waste that all helped bring that reoccurring number up. Mm-hmm. In terms of opportunity for secure, that would obviously be where the company is aiming to go. Or where do you see is the greenfield, so to speak, for the company? Is it in that recurring revenue side of the business or what are you looking towards? Absolutely. I mean, if you think about where we can grow, I mean, the the amount of water that needs to be handled these days is growing Clearwater is a great example where we just started up some gathering lines in a terminal. You know, that's gone from zero to 35,000 barrels a day. We've got a, a gentleman that started this business, sold it to Vita. We we convinced him to come back a couple of years ago, Al LaPlante, on the metal recycling side. I mean, this guy is an unbelievable leader. He's he's taken a, a mediocre operation and took it from a three to a 9.5 out of 10, and he's got all kinds of organic and acquisition opportunities there. We really like the industrial waste side of the business. So there's a lot of different avenues we can do both organically and, and through acquisitions. Critic would say the midstream sector, on one hand, the assets are so valuable because you can't get anything built. But on the other hand, there's no greenfield. But in the case of secure, it sounds like maybe there's some different avenues you can go down to to reassure the investor? Yeah, like, I mean, again, we we have a great team that has the ability to go to those local neighbors. 
we we have probably over 25 different aboriginal partnerships so when we go into those communities it's hey we want to build and clearwater is a good example uh, we went in there and 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 worked with the local communities on why we were building what we were trying to do we we're trying to take trucks off the road which is more safe and we're able to get those permits and 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 construct on a timely basis so you're absolutely right it it is getting tougher and tougher to build greenfield but i think the more upfront effort you put in in place the the higher degree of success you can get and there's nothing worse for someone in that community to at the last minute say, oh by the way we're building this and we just need you to sign this paper like that is the worst thing you can do trying to get your approval stakeholders yeah on the other hand do you need greenfield Everyone says you need to grow, but maybe you don't. <laughs> maybe I, I like to use the word brownfield expansion. So right. we've done a lot of that over the last couple of years where you have your existing infrastructure and you add another disposal well, you add another treater, you know, you add some gathering lines. You know, we've got that K-Bob system where I can see as that Fox Creek area evolves, we're going to need, you know, some more tie-ins out there. So you're absolutely right. I think, you know, there's, there's going to be some nice opportunities like a Nipissey where you can, it's brand new, but we have this great network where you can just add to your existing infrastructure, more brownfield expansion. Hmm. The other catch to that is it's a physical asset that requires capital to grow. Is there a tension between growing with cash and issuing shares slash debt? How do you manage that? Maybe in the case of someone like Phil Hodge at uh, Pinecliff, you pay cash on your recent deal. Yeah. Do you aspire uh, to that? <laughs> yeah. I mean, believe me, uh, from 2007 to 2015, we issued a lot of shares mm-hmm. because we were growing so quick, so fast. Since then, we've done a great job of A, not issuing shares and, and B, actually buying back shares. Like we we bought back over $150 million of shares in, in 23, a little bit and got kicked in in December 15th of last year. And we'll renew that NCIB again. So- the great again, the great thing about this business is our debt. When we merged, we were uh, a debt to EBITDA ratio of three point five. Today we're at one point nine, so that's a that's a comfortable, you know, range. We we like to be in that two to two two and a half range. So my board and and my team is comfortable with that. And then you look at our free cash flow after not only you know your sustaining capital, but your your growth capital and 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 your dividends. There's money left over there. So you can either buy back shares, you can pay down debt or do an acquisition. And I think in today's environment, try to you're trying to not only minimize issuing shares, but also if you can buy back shares. I mean, one investor said to me uh, last week, he said, your, your top line cash flow keeps going up and your amount of shares keep going down. That, that, that's that's good. good. That's good. <laughs> yeah, I, I like that. I like that. <laughs> that's a good thing. Yeah. How do you view capital allocation nowadays? The uh, trend has kind of gone in that direction in energy, although it's probably just a good way to run a business in general. Do you have a preference between buybacks versus dividends or does it depend or how, how are you viewing it, uh, the evolution of the business? Yeah, and that's that's a great question because we have these potential divestures coming up that everyone's laser focused on. And so if you talk to any talk to me talk to anyone on on my team we just look at it as four levers and so we've got these levers where 
we can buy back shares. We think we're undervalued, so that's probably got a, a little bit more of a weight there. Two, you can obviously, um, part of that can be upping your dividend. We just talked about the debt. So, I mean, that's always, you know, you can pay down some, your revolver short term, but I think we're in a pretty good spot there. And then you got this organic and, and acquisition levers. So, depending on what you want to do with your dividend or debt, you know, you've kind of got four or five levers that you have to optimize. And if I knew my exact share price February 15th, I'd tell you, well, we're going to do this, but you know, you don't. So you're always, you're always kind of looking, what's your valuation? Are you undervalued? Are you overvalued? Are there some really, really great projects we want to put some capital in? Are there some really, really great acquisitions that we think we can get a great return? So all those levers, it's fluid in the sense that you just don't know all those variables at any given time. Mom and pop likes to see the dividend maybe on a monthly basis or some of the uh, portfolio managers out east, like you know the special on their income statement. That's one aspect of the consideration, but ultimately the shareholders are the ones that- and you're a huge shareholder or the ones that you're working for, so to speak. Yeah. Is there a tension there between? No, because I think we truly believe, and it's in our investor deck that, that, well, but, and, and, you know, I, I know sometimes, you know, we, 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 we talked about 70% of our, our cash flow comes from environmental waste management. Well, if you look at the environmental waste management companies, the GFLs, the Waste Connections, the Waste Management Republics, they're typically a one and a half to 2% yield. And we're at 5% right now. So I'm not, we're not getting a whole lot of pressure there. And I think internally we're saying, you know what, that's a pretty good dividend. And as we go up, that yield will come down. And again, as long as we're in this undervalued position, you want to actually take every penny and, and put it towards the buyback of shares and balancing all those three or four other things versus a dividend. What are you seeing nowadays in terms of the uh, energy services being a proxy for the industry? Is it good times? Is it wait and see or is it? It's Goldilocks, man. It's Goldilocks <laughs> because, you know, and I say this all the time uh, is that if Someone said tomorrow we're going to double the rigs and completions and and it would just be hell out there. Like wages would go up and we'd be losing people to the rigs. And, and here you've got this disciplined Goldilocks era where, you know, production's growing two, three, four, five percent. And, you know, we're able to get the right people and, and good quality people. Safety is a huge, huge uh, part of our lives and, and focus. And, and obviously if you can get better people, that's great from a operations point of view, but also huge from a safety point of view. And so, you know, and, that, and that's all aspects of our industry, if whether you're on the rigs or the, the frack units or in our plants. So, and then part B of this is, and this is the more on the world macro is I don't want the world to stall or go into a recession. So $100 oil would not be good for us, you know, $10 gas would not be good for us in North America. So we're in this Goldilocks era right now where I think the price of oil is at a more reasonable level and it's, it's good for the consumer and it's good for the producer. In the old days, it used to be kind of a roller coaster where that's, I guess, one of the reasons why people love the shares is that you can make a fortune overnight in the energy industry. Nowadays, it's maybe a bit slower in the share price appreciation. 
but maybe that's a good thing. Yeah. You know, I, I think my shareholders and a lot of them are, are now more generous. There's very few resource funds or energy funds left, right? So you're, you're dealing with a, a generalist that might have a 10% energy weighting. And so what does that generalist want? He wants steady returns over the long term. So, you know, I think that's where Secure is in a great position to offer that and they get to see it from a track record point of view and um, doubling the the drilling revenue and then losing that drilling, you know, revenue is, is not necessarily going to help my long-term multiple or valuation or the generalist. So, so I think Secure is in a, in a good spot where we can, you know, have that long-term sustainable return. Secure is a relatively big company now. Sometimes when companies grow, the bureaucratic aspects slow the company down where you hire too many people, it becomes bureaucratic or even worse, you start manufacturing drones. How do you prevent that at Secure to make sure it's lean and nimble? Culture, culture, culture. I mean, <clears throat> we are obsessed with it. We talk about it. We even brought it up in our town hall. You know, we do engagement surveys. We look for where did we get rated high? Where did we get rated low? We have a town hall where there's no bad questions. You know, people get the phone in or write in or whatever. Uh, they're anonymous. Open and transparent culture is so, so important. I think we, like any organization, when you have 2,200 employees, you're going to have some red tape. You're going to have some bureaucracy. But as long as, you know, we keep saying, put your hand up and just hit that timeout button that, hey, this does not make sense. Or, hey, why why are we doing this? And, and, and the good news is all the way up to our board, I've got a chairman, Mick Dilger, who says, I don't need to see 400 pages in, in this board book. If you're doing it for us, don't do it. Like if you're doing it for yourselves, great, if that helps you manage the business. But so we've got a great culture at the board, great culture in the organization that is obsessed with reducing bureaucracy and red tape and, and do it because it adds value as opposed to I'm checking a box. Yeah. There's a fine line between employee annual reviews and uh, I guess you know it when you see it. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I remember back to my imperial days <laughs> and you would get put into a bell curve, right? Yeah. You know, and you'd, you'd almost have to walk on water to get outside the bell curve. And so the person that's given 80% effort and I'm given 120% effort, we're kind of getting the same rating and like, okay, like this does not feel good. So again, part of the culture is how about we just give people feedback every day, every week, go out for a coffee once a month. How's it going? Is you know, How am I doing as a leader? Those kind of appraisals have ton more weight and more relevance and more timely and, and, and ultimately create better behavior. Yeah. Or there is a room for HR, but sometimes the HR becomes more powerful than the executives themselves. Yeah. Which yeah. is not a good thing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. The benefits of industrial development. How much does Secure give back to the Canadian and uh, Alberta economy on an annual basis just to say flat? It's got to be a lot of money. Yeah. I mean, uh, you're asking in terms of how do we impact the the Alberta GDP and as as well. I mean, you know, there's two parts to that. I mean, you know, obviously we we employ 2200 people and definitely 
you know, when we, most of, we do construct in Saskatchewan and, and British Columbia, so it's not just Alberta. Those are, for the most part, all the other local labor, local contractors, you know, you source your material, material where, you, where you can. I mean, obviously some of the valves are manufactured in Ontario or, or elsewhere, but we're very conscious of that. We're very, we're also very con. We actually track in our sustainability report what what our Aboriginal content is, for instance. So I think that's important too. And then you know, thirdly is giving back to the community. And so I've always tried to make it almost an employee fed, whether it's at the field level or at our corporate office. If you truly believe in a charity, whether it's time or money, we're there to support you. And so whether Obviously, you know, something like the United Way is 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 front and center, but we we just kicked off Movember. We also have, have one in May around heart and stroke and and so and that that's a lot of that's just employee led and we just rally behind it. You know, in the case of Movember, we've had two individuals, uh, Greg Philipchuk and, and Gary Smith, that have some close personal feelings around that and boy you just want to put your arm around them and say hey we're here for you how can i help i last year we we were number two in canada for november right it's crazy it's a lot of money crazy <laughs> but in terms of the i guess the operating costs of secure everything from salaries to property taxes and the facilities uh, maintenance costs everything that goes along with that is adds up into maybe hundreds of millions of dollars a billion oh yeah for sure i mean every year yeah every year i mean i think our i think just our our salaries and labor is 200 million dollars a year like yeah. it's yeah they're big numbers they're There's, big numbers it's an underappreciated aspect of the business perhaps. it is it is and and i think we now have a premier that better understands that i think uh, she has a great team we've been invited to talk to her energy minister just on industry regulations and 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 whatnot in terms of how can we reduce red tape? Imagine that we're, you know, we, we're trying to, trying to help the, the government reduce red tape, you know? So, Hey, that's, that's, that's exciting when you're, you're asked to, how can you reduce red tape? <clears throat> Up to this point, what's been the favorite part of your career? The most stimulating or most enjoyable? Maybe right now. <laughs> you know what? Right from day one was just watching your people grow. That's, that's definitely, um, you go to see a customer and, and they've dealt with one of your EVPs or even a plant foreman and they go, wow, man, have you got a great team? Wow. I really like that guy. I really like her. You know, she really helped me out. So that, that's been probably the, the most satisfying, I think, too, is anytime you can grow something from nothing into a company that has a great culture that has a long-term future, that excites the hell out of me. And I'll tell you right now, if Rennie gets hit by a bus tomorrow, this company doesn't meet a heartbeat. Like this thing is is designed and we do it all the way down to the plant manager or drilling fluids or, you know, metal recycling. We're always talking about secession planning and, and make, and at the same time, I want them to have the chance to grow. Like there's nothing worse in an organization where your younger people don't have a chance to grow. And, that, and in fact, that's how you lose them if, if you don't give them that chance to grow. So just watching all that percolate and grow and develop and all that, that's huge, hugely satisfying for me. And, and then just getting the, the nice accolades from your customers, Alan and I and Chad 
He's been our CFO since 2000, I think 16. Al went into corporate development and, and again, Chad came from the oil and gas world, but his, his learning curve was huge and he's grown tremendously, but all three of us will be on the road and, and we're having a few, uh, beers with our customers and, and to get accolades or, Hey, you really helped us here. I really appreciate that. That's, that's the best feeling in the world. Most people or a lot of people will go to you for advice in the company and industry in general, but nowadays, is there anyone you go to for advice that you maybe look towards or have you learned to kind of look in the mirror, so to speak? You know, I, I, I try to get involved in, you know, whether it's advocacy or, or some of these charity things and the side benefit that is you get to rub shoulders with a, a Mike Rose or Grant Fagerheim or even Rob Brown from Athabasca. And again, you're having a coffee or a lunch or something like that. And you just talk, you know, you're talking about world supply demand, you know, you're talking about politics, you're talking about what's happening in Ottawa or new regulations. So the best part of my board is we put seven pretty independent, diverse people on that board that at any given time, I can phone them up or take them out for a coffee and get advice. So I would just say, I just surround myself with a network of external people that I, I can get independent, maybe unbiased advice. And, and not that I always get unbiased, but sometimes you have to get out of your little world, take the blinders off and say, okay, what's happening outside of the secure world? Right. Um, speaking of boards, it's kind of a balance between interacting with people who understand the industry and uh, you can trust, so to speak, and finding people outside the industry to give you unbiased advice. Is it difficult to find that balance? Absolutely. It's it's harder than you believe. And, you know, we, we talk about when you're doing your recruitment for board members, there's certain boards that tick boxes and there's other boards like ours that really grill down to where do you come from? What's your experiences? What's your leadership style? What, what was it like for you as a, an executive or CEO or CFO or w- whatever that background is? And, and I think ultimately your best directors are ones that have that independent view, but have some sort of tie back to what you're trying to do or, you know, where you want to go and, and ultimately help get you. And sometimes that's operational. Sometimes that's financials, you know, sometimes that's environmental, sometimes that's small companies, sometimes that's big, you know, so you're just looking in that, the whole, uh, different, almost kaleidoscope of, of experiences and, and skills that ultimately get you that best board. And then to your point, you all got to trust each other. You can't have a board second guessing or spending 80% of their time in camera. Like, you know, get it out on the table. And that's, that's what I love about my word. Just get it out on the table. It's not, you know, we don't need to talk about this for the next six months. Just get it on the table and Hey, we'll try to make a decision. This is going back. I missed it. Do you remember your first day in energy? First day in the field? Yeah, that's, um, <laughs> Well, I, I remember my first day in um, my first day in Edmonton, going to that big head office, you know, that had probably, you know, back then they probably had about fifteen floors, and intimidating as hell. You know, I'm, this is a kid that came from Churchill, Manitoba, and was fearless. But you know, you go into that and you have your, you know, your crooked tie and and uh, tip top tailor suit, 
And yeah, I, I remember that very distinctly, but there was, uh, there was a lot of, for some reason in that accounting department, uh, there was a lot of people hired out of my college. And so I immediately knew they, there was five of us that got hired that year. So you had some immediate, immediate friends and immediate, you know, something in common. And, and then my boss had come from Winnipeg as well. So, so by the end of the day, you're feeling pretty comfortable and saying, okay, I can fit in here and I can be part of the team here or whatnot. And of course, what you quickly find out is they've got a baseball team and a hockey team. And, you know, we all got, you know, that just creates that camaraderie and, and, and great culture. So I remember that. And then, and then in terms of the field going up to, uh, up to Tuck to Yuck Tuck, I mean, I, being from the North, I mean, I was grinning from ear to ear. I remember you'd fly into uh, Anuvik, you'd take a twin otter up to Tuck base. And so you're landing and there's a hard Northwest wind coming in <laughs> and the pilots would land on one wheel, if you can believe that, in a twin otter and just set it right down and there you go. And uh, again, just, uh, uh, you know, you're on top of the world because you're in, you know, you can see the Arctic Circle from there. You are not the average accountant. Maybe like McDilger, you have led organizations and you are basically a business leader. How did you develop that diverse skill set? And were you always aware of the importance of not just being a, an accountant? You know, I think um, it goes back to, you know, your childhood. Mom and dad didn't have much money. So you, I was always, you know, had part-time jobs. And, and so I think those experiences, whether it's washing dishes or, or uh, I remember I, one summer I worked in the Hudson Bay. I was helping the produce manager and I'm, I'm only 15 years old and, and he dislocates his shoulder and they make me the produce manager at 15 years old. So, you know, you just kind of take on that responsibility. Like, well, okay, you know, you, you want me to run this thing? I'll run it. And so I think those experience gives you that confidence and maybe helps you with your early day learning skills. And believe me, I, it's taken me, I'm still learning today from when it comes to leadership skills, but I think those early experiences helped me. The diversity I, I had of all those different jobs in, at Impure Oil kind of set you up so that when they when they say that, hey, you know, do you want A, do you want to start a company and B, you want to be CEO, you're comfortable with that decision. You're not, you know, you're, you're certainly not thinking, geez, can I really do this? You kind of go into it with not too much confidence, but at least some self-confidence that, yeah, we can we can do this. Advice to a young person starting out in energy or in business in general? What would you tell them? Well, energy specific, you think about the hierarchy needs in, in, in the world. And, and I always go back to the, the lucky 1.4 billion people on earth and the, the 6 billion that want what we have. We need hydrocarbons. We need more energy molecules, any way you slice it. And so this industry, this business, and how we diversify the energy sources, and, and maybe we're going to be part of that. Young people have a career for the next 30, 60, 90 years, you know, who, who knows? But, you know, I think right now what's playing out is we need secure energy, we need reliable energy, and two wars happening uh, right now just show you how quickly that can be taken away from you. I always put myself in the shoes of, let's say, that person in Africa, which is the fastest growing uh, continent. Right now, 
he's walking, but someday he wants to be able to afford a bicycle. And then someday he's going to have the money to get a motorcycle. And then it's going to be a small car. And he's not worried about going from small car combustion engine to electric. He's just thinking, I need a pickup so I can take my goods to the market. And so nobody's nobody's having that conversation. I mean, I'm going to be glued to COP28 because the uh, United uh, Arab Emirates is hosting. And he's talked about, let me get this straight. He says, you know, you think this is controversial that I'm hosting? He says, let me get this straight. <laughs> you, know, you developed countries, went in and, and raped and pillaged these undeveloped countries, took all their resources, and now you're telling them that they don't get the resources? Uh, or, uh, you know, we're going to bypass the cheap energy and you have to go to the expensive energy? We need to have a conversation. And so uh, I think COP28 is going to be fascinating because it might be the very first time of any of those COP conferences where they're going to have an open and honest dialogue about what the world needs over the next 30 to 60 years. And so getting back to your question, anybody that's thinking about energy, this is probably as exciting as it's ever been. And then part two, if you're starting out today, the world is your oyster. I mean, we we need more good people in this industry. We've we've collectively, we had 37 summer students uh, last year. We're trying to get as many people exposed to this industry as we can in that second, third year of, of college, university, you know, whatever they're doing. And when they get here, they go, holy shit, this is, this is exciting. Well, I think that's a great place to leave it. Okay. I really appreciate your time, and I know a lot of listeners will also appreciate your time. So thank you very much. All right. Thank you. Thanks for listening, everyone. Hopefully you enjoyed the episode. If you liked what you heard, check out rosebros.ca, where we will have upcoming shows. Until next time, happy coffee drinking. <laughs>